live your life, boy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Conspiracy Farm, where we don't start the conspiracies, we just add the water. And now, your host of the most state-of-the-art, most informed podcast on the interweb, I present to you, Pat Militage and Jeffrey Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for Yeah, rear naked choke of Cocker Spaniel, bro. You know what I'm saying? Change the neighborhood up. Conspiracy Farm. Go. Check it out. All right, guys, here we go off to the races once again. Always good to be back at the farm. Jeffrey Wilson riding shotgun with UFC Hall of Famer, Eater of Worlds, Patrick J. Milicic with a very interesting guest today, man. I'm really stoked to hear about all this. You were so stoked when we talked about it. Take her away, champ. I'd love to, Jeffrey. And I, I got to tell you, I've had several conversations with our guest. And each time that I, I speak with him, my ears are, well, bubbling over with gray matter pouring out of them. And a little bit of smoke as well. Super, super uh, stoked to interview our guest, Joseph Johnson, who is many things, agriculture expert, water expert, restructuring of water molecular structures uh, to capture light, to capture energy. He's going to get into these things using quantum physics that most people just simply have never even comprehended, let alone experienced any of this stuff. And He's been the CEO of two biotech companies. He's an expert in dramatically increasing efficiency of organics combined with, of course, a better level of water for soil reclamation and larger yields for agriculture and many other things. So, Joseph Johnson, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, man. I'm, um, I appreciate it. I've, I've spent most of my, uh, I guess, career in a, a lab or out in the field running testing and um, I've done very little, I guess, public speaking in relation to this, um, mainly because I, I haven't felt that I really truly gra- I felt like there was more, I still had more questions than I had answers about things. And I wasn't sure I could really add anything useful to the conversation except for more confusion. And, uh, so well, I, I think, I, yeah, I think the main thing is, you know, start by explaining, you know, the process of what you've been through to, um, unwind the, yeah, so, the water, the water secrets, and and what you found and what you've created. Number one, with that, and some of your history, of course, in in agriculture as well. So yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll talk about how I got into this because it is very interesting, um, and it's kind of it's really juxtaposed to what a lot of people, I guess, generally believe about it. So. I first started studying water structure as a side effect of a customer of mine uh, introducing me to what he called a, a water structuring unit, and he described it to me. And I'm like, well, that's just impossible. That's not, there's nothing real about that. That's complete junk science, pseudoscience, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, would you be willing to test a device for me? I said, yeah, sure, send it over. So my factory in my laboratory was on a, was on, about a 40-acre strawberry farm in Oxford, California. And they sent me the device, and I looked at it, and I'm like, there's no way this thing does anything at all. But I'm like, okay, I'll be fair. I'll give it a test. The thing that confused me about the situation is normally con artists, they'll ask for your money before they send you anything, if they send you anything, right? So I'm like, they got this con wrong. So since they paid for the shipping and sent me the unit, I decided to go ahead and give it a fair shake. And the initial test that I did was simply pouring water through the device and putting some of a, a test and control. I had some 
bean sprouts. And um, there were some some beans, so I decided to make bean sprouts. And strength. What was curious about it was that the beans that I tested with the with the structured water, they actually developed much more robust root systems, and the germination rate was increased. And so I was sitting there scratching my head, going, "Well, I'm not sure I want to go and take this out to any of the farms of the people that I know that are generally very conservative and test this because." Uh, well, they'll probably look at me and laugh um, if I say anything about it. So I'm, I asked my friend Steve, I'm like, hey, do you mind if I just test this on like a small, a small uh, plot of strawberries? He's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. So I put it out there, and to my surprise, it's like 24 hours we had a uh, – there's this measurement that we take when it comes to assessing the quality of food. It's called a bricks reading. It's where we crush out the plasma or the liquid in, in the uh, vasculature of the plant. And we take a measurement of the sugar or, and the, the combination of sugars or minerals that are in the uh, plasma. And we use that as a metric to determine the quality of food, amount of nutritional value and or um, kind of guess the amount of energy that there is in, you would get from consuming that tissue. And uh, we got a 25% increase in the bricks, the berries in 24 hours, which is incredibly unusual the thing is for strawberries specifically to increase the bricks and the sweetness when i tasted the berries they were incredibly sweet um to increase that number you have to get more calcium in. and this is a problem specifically in southern california where we have uh, clay soils and very salty clay soils and strawberries are generally not very tolerant to salt and calcium is poorly poorly mobile in clay soils it tends to grab and hold the clay uh, be held tightly by the clay and calcium being a very large um, very large molecule atom large valence shell in comparison to some of the other things it can be very difficult to get into the tissues so the readings that I was getting was suggesting we had a dramatic increase in a element that we oftentimes had a lot of trouble getting into the plant so I was kind of shocked and, uh, well, I told, I called up and I told the people the results that I got, preliminary results. And they're like, oh, can we come out and, you know, do a video of you and have you talk about it? I'm like, I, I guess I don't know what to say about it much, but I, I can see this result and it's consistent across, you know, fairly large fields. So um, these people came out that were from the company or salesmen for the company that made it. Now, the company that made it didn't have, they were the people, the salesmen were complaining to me that nobody had ever done any scientific testing on the devices and they didn't have any evidence. They was all like pseudoscience was all like sold through spirituality and this and that, and the other thing. And they wanted some test data. And so they were shocked when I actually did a test for the, <laughs> and got a result because I was the first person that had ever been able to do that apparently, uh, despite these devices being sold for many years. And, uh, so I was still confused about the device and the fact that it worked at all. And I was, they came out and did an interview with me and I'm like, I really don't know what, I don't know what to say. The only time I normally see this sort of thing is, you know, after a rain, we'll get this sort of response of an increased growth rate and increased sugars and bricks and so on and so forth. And that got me thinking about exactly what is the difference between rainwater and, and, you know, regular, you know, and city water. I could put distilled water on plants and that doesn't seem to increase their growth. You know, if done well water, that doesn't increase their growth. But there's something about rainwater that 
nobody can deny has a dramatic effect on the growth rate of plants. And I don't really see any explanation for that in any chemistry or physics books. I've seen different explanations and all of them, I've thought through them or, you know, evaluated them in their junk, you know, that they don't pencil out. Um, They may sound good at the first hearing, but when you start trying to do math on it, it doesn't make any sense. So um, that was really the beginning of my curiosity in relation to this and and I was wanting started looking into it because I'm like this is really a significant thing that we haven't really nailed down or defined and it seems to be responsible for you know a huge difference in the way that plants grow rainwater versus regular water Joseph if, we if could I can synthesize if, rainmaker water if we I can, could have something very useful if I can so ask you real quick I'm sorry, Joseph, have you heard of like certain municipalities frowning on inciting people for collecting rainwater? I have. Um, and I, I was looking into that. Normally what, what it is, is it's, uh, at least in California, there's this company called The Wonderful Company. And it's ran by a very politically well-connected individual. And, uh, well, it seems that there are wealthy and powerful people that have bought into or basically worked to privatize our water sources. And um, those people want everybody on a municipal system that they supply, right? So it's a municipal supply, but it is a private company that owns the water and supplies it to the municipality generally. In a lot of these places, that's the direction it's going. So, so you do, do you um, think that's why they're they're pushing it towards that because they would just want you on their their system as opposed to a, a certain understanding of what you're talking about that rainwater does this exponential growth of of certain plant life. You know, I, I'm not sure that I can know enough to speak about all municipalities and all systems of government or all the different deals that different businesses have made with. I, I can't really say that. I don't know. I think there's different reasons for doing things, but I think this is can be boiled down to just plain simple human greed where you have, I mean, if you look at the way our, our government is here in the United States right now, we have corporations writing these huge long bills that they hand to the people they paid to run for office to sign before they've even read. Right. So we know that right. it's private corporations that are generally writing all the bills and putting the money and time into generating um you know, all the laws that are being entered onto the books by the politicians that they hired to run in the first place. That seems to be the mechanism of operation. And I don't really see uh, there'd be a profit in at least the people that are running like water systems. I don't think that there's no profit they would have in, in inhibiting the health of the population. They aren't like a medical company. So... Um, I can't really draw a line for pro- to profit for that. And generally, I do believe that corporations in America operate for the purpose and reason of profit. Uh, it does seem to be the case. Um, so if there isn't a profit interest in it, it's hard for me to define a motive and thus creating the idea why there would be why that would be happening that way. Um, I do know there are some people that are psychopaths and whatever, <laughs> maybe they have control of different areas. And that's a what two percent of the population are sociopaths so maybe well in the reason, places, but i don't think it's ubiquitous one of the reason i ask because we often make that correlation between that revolving door between ingesting poison which is our food supply and then the pharmaceutical company so if something like what you're saying 
rainwater being able to grow more nutritious, bigger, you know, more fruitful plants and them wanting to frown upon collecting rainwater, it kind of, it's all kind of circumstantial. There's well, no... Hey, you know, this is the thing, though. It doesn't seem that you can store rainwater and it will have the same effect as it has when it first falls from the sky. Mm. This is one of the, that's one of the things about it. If that were the case, all water on the surface is rainwater. So why is it different if the rain, if it rains somewhere else over here than went through a canal and then I pump it through a, with a, a, a pump into my field? Why does that not work as well? So that's kind of the question. That's, that's the curiosity, right? So. No, without a doubt. And I, I don't. I honestly don't mean to cut you off. It's kind of like a stream of consciousness right now as I'm thinking about it because uh, G. Edward Griff, Griffin made a documentary called What in the World Are They Spraying? And it's interesting for you to say, or not to say you're wrong, but to hear you say that there's so much benefit to rainwater falling on certain plants and the molecular uh, transformation, I guess, that happens. And then seeing like in this documentary what the stuff they're spraying in the sky is, what it's doing to trees plants foliage plant life etc it's it's interesting very interesting well i'm i'm not to discount i i can't say speak to as to what they're spraying i i mean I, people say i've been watching what they call i used to live in southern arizona and i've been watching these chemtrails for years and and people have tried to say they're contrails except for when I've tried to match the temperature and humidity at the altitude the planes are flying with the idea that the contrails that are forming, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense because they're there sometimes and not there other times. Right. So it's pretty obvious that it's, it's some sort of a, a, a program. And if you look into the patent office, there are patents that describe mechanisms for geoengineering that uh, pretty much describe what we see happening in there. Yes. So calling yeah. it a conspiracy theory is kind of stupid at this point. Yeah. It's not a theory when you have a patent on it. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, and it's even yeah, in government legislation. Uh, I think Pat, one of our friends, entered legislation into the Illinois legislature about it, and it's in UN documents. It's in all kind of government documents for sure. Like you said, to call it a theory at this point is, you know. Well, you, have you heard that? I heard a joke recently. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. They said, you know what the difference is between a conspiracy theory and reality? Nowadays, about six months, yeah. three months. <laughs> seriously, seriously. And, and it's just, uh, I mean, it's just, I, I have seen, a, I mean, a huge change in, um, I guess, the way our political leaders and the heads of many establishments have been behaving. I I saw it while I was working, you know, last 15 years in agriculture. Um, just the marriage between the large, large companies and the um, enforcement arms of our government, and that revolving door. And I saw, got to see firsthand exactly how corrupt our um, system is, at least with fertilizers. Uh, especially when you start talking about organics. Now, the interesting thing is, I actually refuse to have any of my products registered as certified organics or organic because. For a variety of reasons, but basically it came down to a principle, and it's that the people that determined or wrote the standards for the organic agriculture are the same people selling us chemical fertilizers. Yes. And the chemical model for agriculture is no different if it's, if they're the same elements, right? The difference is in the balance of it and how you understand it. Yeah. So the, the, the model that I was championing and working on was basically based off of the millions of years ago. There were plants grew five times as big as they do now, and there were no fertilizer companies. So how does that work? I would rather have plants growing five times as big as they do now and not have to buy fertilizer. My reasoning for joining 
getting involved in fertilizer was multi multifaceted, but primarily one of my goals that I had was literally to destroy the fertilizer industry because I realized it had to be a fraud. There's no way it could not be. The, the fossil record across the entire planet says so. Hmm. Well, and that so, ag business, as Pat, we've talked about it many times on the show, that, you know, it's all organized crime, in my humble opinion, and the agricultural business is absolutely no exception because, again, you know, it's not to get too deep into it, as we've talked about, but it starts with the soil. You can certify it stuff organic as much as you want, but if you're treating your soil with nut- or with petrochemicals, et cetera, you're, you're not pumping well, out honestly, anything. I don't have a problem with petrochemical fertilizers. I don't have a problem with the elements or the atoms themselves. There's nothing wrong with them. The issue is the balances that they're put in and a misunderstanding. Our entire model of agriculture is based off of, uh, have you ever heard of Van Leibig? I haven't. He's a French chemist that created the model for ion, 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 basically it's the ion exchange mechanism, the current model of agriculture. And he recanted his PhD thesis where he actually put this model forward about five years after he wrote it, uh, he realized he was wrong. And we should realize, in fact, all of our, if you actually go and dig into the, um, dig into the studies that have been done, there's evidence in every single major university they have a record of the application or current model of application of fertilizers causing a significant and continual decline in soil fertility year upon year upon year upon year. This is a fact, and everybody knows it, but this is the thing. The less fertile the soil becomes, the more fertilizer you have to put it into a grow a crop. Thus, this is a very profitable model, and this is the sole reason is continu- this model has continued and been pushed to science for the last 100 years. Mm. It, was, it was absolutely recanted and rebutted perfectly by the person that by the scientists that invented it, much like the M- mRNA vaccine, if you want to look into that, but um, <laughs> it's not a vaccine. Um, but this is interesting. Uh, we, well, we want to get back to the topic of water. Sure. One Sorry. thing that I've noticed is um, I do soil consulta- consultation. So whenever I would work with a farmer to help them improve their yield, we'd do a soil test and it didn't take me very long to figure out the soil test we were getting um, when we would apply the fertilizer program appropriate to it and then test the soil afterwards. That the balances did not, you'd think that you put in, you know, X amount of pounds of, of figs, X amount of pounds of potatoes, and X amounts of pounds of oranges into the back of a truck, and that you would increase those volumes and the values that you would find after you transported that truck to its destination to be increased by the amount you added into it. But it, if we were going to apply that analogy to soil and nutrients being put in, it never behaves that way. Um, in fact, it seemed that every time we would add something, some corrective element into the ground, it would induce a, 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 tri- a secondary or tertiary deficiency down the road. And this was baffling to me. The other thing that really got me was if I took, I, I decided after a while to start to try something. So I'd take, a, instead of one sample, I would take three. And I would send those three samples to the three most reputable laboratories and see what they came back with. And I never got the same test result back. They were all different, significantly so. And I'm like, well, that's very interesting. If our testing method for determining nutrient deficiency on soil is 
always going to show that things are off or is going to give us a random result back, that will mean that every time you do a soil test, you'll have to apply something, right? But it never seemed to actually correct the problem. Now, to some extent, we figured out some smart guys, some really, some really ingenious individuals um, decided to start doing tissue analysis of plants. And instead of applying what they saw missing from the soil, foliarly applied um, corrective, uh, corrective nutrients. Now, this makes it incredibly efficient because you go from needing hundreds of pounds to, or tens of pounds to needing a pound or an ounce for an entire acre. It's incredibly efficient. Um, and this seems to actually have resulted in people that have applied these techniques getting a much better um, product productivity out of their plants. And uh, that's it's a it's really interesting because one of the other studies that I have looked at was there's this guy named Red uh, Redfield. He got a Nobel Prize in uh, 1933, and what he did was he went and took thousands, tens of tens upon thousands, tens upon tens of thousands of samples of soil and water all over the planet. And what he found was that the, regardless of where he tested, the chemistry for life itself, regardless of what the chemistry of the environment was was always the same and that's really interesting because we have for me because i go and i we try and grow this crop or that crop and we say well we have to change the basis of the chemistry of the soil to get this crop or that crop of what's soluble out of the ground and redfield said well no really the chemistry and all the things are the same the base chemistry for life it's the same and that would be suggested we should only have one fertilizer balance that would be ideal to put, apply to the ground to induce well the growth of life right so um that was fascinating to me but getting back to water we have to say if if that's the case then how is it that all these different parent materials or base chemistries that we have in the soil literally from that base chemistry this has a huge variation between thirty-eight thousand different soil types in the united states alone how are we getting this how are in all of those environments is the same chemistry moving into solution in the water and then creating life. The only answer I could find to that would be that the structure of the water in all of those different environments was either A, a different structure of water, or B, the water itself had some sort of intelligence that allowed it to selectively extract the chemistry of life from a variety of different, regardless of what the base chemistry of the solution, of the, of the parent material of the soil or environment was. And that really screwed my brain up. <laughs> yeah, please, if you don't mind, say that again. The stru- the what of the- say that again. Okay, so let's take it. Look, I'll, I'll try and say it this way: We have thirty-eight thousand different balances of chemistry in our ground in the United States uh, soil alone, according to the latest geological survey, um, which we spent a significant. The U.S. government spent a significant amount of money on doing a fairly good job evaluating. Um, so if we have all these different chemistries that are in the soil everywhere, and the, but we know also from uh, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Red, Redfield, that the chemistry for life, a living, a le- living ecosystem, is exactly the same, then how is it that water is able to extract from all these different environments the, selectively the balance of the chemistry of life? Right? So you could say that here's the base material of soil, then we have all the living tissue. If we separate those two out, and then we know that water is the medium of exchange that basically 
collects or dissolves all those nutrients, picks them up and puts them in the cells, and then makes more cells. What that would mean is that water has this ability to selectively extract from varying balances, the perfect balance of the chemistry of life and generate life from it. So that would mean either A, that in water in all these situations is different, has a different structure, or B, that water has an intelligence and is able to selectively dissolve just the things that are specific to the chemistry of life in the correct balances from all of these different environments. And, and I don't want to. I don't want to use a too, too whatever, over intellect into over intellectualized term here. But does that connote in any way that the water is like sentient? Well, I mean, I guess it would be dependent on what would be called sentience. I mean, um, for for it, now, it's like to choosing which. I, I don't know. It. I would say it's more over a conduit for sentience. Wow. A water is known as a universal solvent, and it effectively acts as a medium of exchange for electrical current. And if we we're going to call consciousness, say, what's the difference between a living human, a living being, and a dead being? It would be the electrical, uh, the, the electrical, the electrical charge that is running, that's running through their their system and operating or initiating all of that, uh, initiating effectively cellular respiration or the. the initiating current for the Krebs cycle for respiration. So consciousness itself, if we were going to define it, at least I would say, is, is the current, the operating, um, I guess, electrical current and whatever component or intelligent system that's able to regulate um, the, the systems of the bodies or the organelles of the body, all the different, mm. uh, regulate all the, the interplay between all those different organs functions. And, um, Which makes sense because, you know, our planet is so much water and we're made up of 90 plus percent water. It's it's very interesting to kind of think that water has, um, I don't know, this kind of power. It, not to, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you again because I'm just, um, have you? No, and we're, I don't not, wanna, we're having a discussion. Yes, yes, an exchange of ideas. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Joseph. I, I, I don't want to get into pseudoscience, but I found this very fascinating. Maybe you can t- help talk me off the ledge about this. But there was a scientist, or was a doctor, Dr. Masaru Emoto. Have you heard of him, the Japanese scientist? In his- yes, of course, yes. Okay. Is that nonsense? I'm going to read this real fast, just so people who don't know who Dr. Masaru was. Um, doc- his work is documented in the New York Times, hidden... Uh, bestseller the hidden messages in water he demonstrates how water to and exposed to loving benevolent and compassionate human intention results in aesthetically pleasing physical molecular formations in the water while water exposed to fearful and discordant human intentions resulted in disconnected and disfigured and unpleasant physical molecular formations is that nonsense or is there something to that because then it gets into the environment like you said it's the, the uh, anyway go ahead no, it's not. It's 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 not necessarily nonsense at all. Um, if you're going to say, and we'll go ahead, back, go back to your terms, um, discordant perspective. Now, if you were going to look at that as frequency or sound frequency, if you have a sound, the sound frequencies or notes that are played together that have a a beneficial interaction with each other, then it literally creates beautiful patterns in <laughs> salts on laid on a you know on a sheet of a slate. Now, interestingly, the patterns that are created that are consistent, they would be platonic solids, right? The stable standing waves that are generated between a beneficial interaction between two frequencies creates patterns that we would refer to as beautiful or um, 
you know, that, that do associate with the platonic solids. And if you go back to the platonic solids and you want to go start looking at the electron, the positions of electrons or the number of electrons on the outside of uh, elements, though, so we could get, there's a ton of different, all the different elements have a, a wide variety of different number of electrons, but it's only the elements, the, the electrons that are on the outer shell that interact with anything else. And this is what determines um, effectively the limitation. It's what determines the structural, uh, the structure of all of the different compounds that there are in nature. And so, in that sense, what you would call, uh, some people refer to as sacred geometry, which is oftentimes referred to as pseudoscience, um, which is abs an absurd obfuscation of fact. And I'll get to that in a second. Hmm. Um, is, is actually the pseudoscience that they call sacred geometry is the basis of all chemistry. It's mathematically sound. It explains interaction between different or, you know, the, it gives a definition for the base of all structural formations, mm. which includes light, DNA, crystalline structure. And all those chemical reactions are based off of, can be understood through understanding platonic solids. Now, getting to that, there used to be, there was only two books that were available for anybody to read. And one of the books that was essential for everyone to read was by Euclid. It was called The Elements. Now, the reason why that is so absolutely essential, I think, for the education of the population, and it used to be considered essential to be, read, to become considered to be um, educated, is this. Our modern schooling system teaches people memorization. Um, the Elements, Euclid, uh, by Euclid teaches people deduction and through the principles set down in the elements all mathematics was born all science Euclid of course Euclid of course was the Greek mathematician father of geometry was he not just so people know just yeah qualify the terms a mathematician is in, I would say is incorrect but then, well I mean it could depends on how you define it but the way people understand math now where we have numbers, numbers had absolutely nothing to do with it. Numbers are um, effectively idols. They are um, fictions. Mm. The line means nothing of a one. The two is not represent two. The three, or there are some people that have, have said, explained how it represents. One represents everything. But again, this is a representative. They have a representative function or power meaning that they are not actually the thing we're describing, we're talking about, we're using them to describe the thing. Right. Now, the elements actually explains how we, we created numbers from the principles set down in the elements. And the principles set down in the elements created all the sacred geometry. It's what created our ability to, to uh, the understanding that was necessary for Mosley, for instance, to be able to use x-rays to initially image the proton at the center of the nucleus of an atom and, and, and create our model for the table, standard table of the elements it is that ability that is transferred or basically begins with the understanding set down in the fire and the elements that we created all of our sciences from. And it's something that's not taught. Hmm. It's taught. We're taught memorization rather than the principles that you need to understand to infer truth from fact. And um, that is the thing is we have a, the most edge of the society with the most amount of information and yet zero understanding of how anything works. And that is an, in, in its of itself a remarkable achievement, in my opinion. <laughs> but I'm not sure it's something that 
is um, you could also describe as a, a desirable achievement. Um, not from my perspective of how I would like to see the world be, but um, maybe it's useful for some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the thing is that there are sacred geometry and numerology have been described as pseudosciences pri- primarily by the, I think as an effect of the fact that people have been using them. Uh, they were adopted by people to do tarot readings or other, you know, uh, other um, people that do use these mechanisms to con other people out of their money. But there is a reasoning for it. There is actually a scientific aspect to this, but you have to, you know, how to apply it correctly. Now, when it comes to Dr. Emoto, I can explain, I can if you take a comb and you run it through your hair, create a static charge and put it next to water, you know what happens? I don't. I don't have any hair. so It pushes it away. Now, so a static, a static field is what is known as it's a, it's a static electrical field. It's what is known as a dielectric field. And a dielectric field uh, repels magnetic or paramagnetic um, uh, fields, which oxygen is a paramagnetic element you can use a magnet to attract it so if you're saying the frequency you have this cellular frequency of all your every cell that is like in your body again there's a current coming from your brain going down to those cells that is initiating the combustion right that's happening and causing all those cells to fire that is a that is an electromagnetic current and an electromagnetic current when it flows through i mean it generates a it generates a field and that field will affect water so mm-hmm. i have another co- concept for you for you that you may not have thought of or considered the heart is not a pump and i was shocked when i got to stanford and i realized that none of the uh, heart doctors had any idea that, that was the case and the reason why i know this is i've worked in agriculture and i know the kind of power that is necessary to pump a liquid through a pipe and how that gets exponentially greater the smaller the pipe gets. So when you look at the velocity that blood has to travel through the body to be able to maintain a supply of nutrients and oxygen to the cells for the continuous combustion, respiration, removal of liquid, uh, removal of waste, it's impossible to accomplish using a pressure pump. No way. Not possible. So then we have to go, well, then how is the circulation of blood in the body happening? The lungs? If it's not a pump, it's not. It's a valve. Heart's a valve. It opens and closes based upon uh, based upon pressures that are generated are generated in the vascular vascular system and the tissues. So let me explain. Um, one of the mechanisms that you may be familiar with, with that they use to evaluate the function of the heart is called an electrocardiogram, right? Where they're actually me- measuring these charges that are generated by the body that really cause the heart to contract and, um, and expand. So it is literally the current that's causing the heart to contract or expand. But there's another thing about the body and the blood. Blood is hemoglobin. So it has this heme- hemi molecule, iron. Iron is a magnetic material, but it can, depending on what its oxidation state, it will either be attracted to or repelled by um, a, a field, electromagnetic field or current, uh, depending on the polar the polarity of that uh, that field. 
which means basically which way it's spinning and, and going. So when you look at the heart, you go, well, the heart's not pumping. What's happening is there's a current being generated. It goes through these systems that literally propels the blood much in the way a, say, a rail gun you're familiar with, where they have this you know, iron object and they generate these between these two rails, these two opposite currents. And uh, the electromotive force that is generated from that flow of current propels that iron object out. That is more akin to the way that the blood circulates through the body. It's actually pressure that's generated over the whole of the vascular system in a polar manner that pushes or propels, puts small amounts of force on the whole of the blood in solution, on the whole of the blood in your body in in a specific direction based upon its polarity. And that's how it can separate oxygenated blood from deoxygenated blood and tell it which, which vascular where, where to go. <laughs> that's how it works. As far as I can understand, that's my best estimation. No reasonable conclusion or explanation of how blood is pumped through the body, from what I can tell, has ever been actually proposed by modern science. Well, that's very um, fascinating because I have, a, I have a loved one who's, I mean, a lot of people, you know, iron deficient. And there's, you know, this particular so, person's kind of been passing out, and you know, not they're not too manganese deficient, not iron deficient. Is that what it? Okay, okay. Uh, there's a reason for that. Like I was talking about um, analytical chemistry and some of the issues with it, and um, I don't know. I know so many so many people that have been diagnosed with iron deficiency, and they take iron pills, take iron, take iron, take iron, and yet for some reason they can't build the levels up in their blood. And you go, well, what's the issue? Um, well, the thing is, is, there's a mechanism by which iron is brought, you know, moves into the blood. So you have to look at more of the mechanisms that generate blood in the body and supply iron. And iron is regulated by manganese. So manganese is critically deficient in our soils as a side effect of the application of Roundup. Um, the Roundup, one of the things that I noticed was when we would be testing on um, the Basically, we did the test on germination rate to determine the quality of the crop. And uh, we were down to about 60, generally it's around 62% is what it runs in the Midwest for like uh, seed wheat and corn and whatnot. And when I started applying my, my uh, biological products out in the, these um, large industrial farms out in the Midwest, uh, we started seeing year on year increases in the germination rates. And what's more interesting is that we saw eliminations or removal, remediation, you might say, of the genome of the plants, where when we were planted a GMO crop and applied the biology, the, the crop would not show any of the genetic markers of having had their uh, DNA modified by a virus. Um, as is, you know, we, we have this piece, we have a PCR test that we do to, to test for around the specific genes, the Roundup Ready genes. It's just a little like, uh, they sell these kits for doing it, right, to test if it's a GMO or if it has this thing or that thing or whatever. And, um, and so we would see that uh, literally the, the biology in the ground that's responsible for making the nutrients available, which since if Leibig's idea of ionic fertilizer is incorrect, then we have to say what's the mechanism by, for, for uptake by plants, right? So as far as I can tell, if you ever do germination on the seed, the first thing that happens is the seed that starts to exude um, carbohydrates and sugars out into the ground around it. And in a healthy soil, those or microorganisms will take those organic acids and it will break them down to specific 
um, they'll take the sugars, they'll do fermentation or facultative fermentation, and they'll generate organic acids that, depending on the organic acid profile, um, those each specific organic acid has a preference for reacting with or attaching to different types of nutrients. And this allows for the selective extraction of nutrients uh, from the soil by a, a, a interface between the, the, plant, the seed or the plant and these microorganisms, right? And um, so it was by this mechanism I was able to actually grow plants and soils that uh, they would say, this is infertile, you can't grow shit, you can't grow, grow anything here. And um, yet I would see it happening in some cases. And then, so I figured out how to induce that effect. Um, but when it comes to the, the GMO, I mean, they're spraying stuff now and it's like literally killing it, everything. So when you apply Roundup, for instance, Roundup is a broad spectrum micronutrient chelator. And um, it basically ties up the iron, ties up the manganese, it ties up um, the copper, the zinc, the cobalt. These elements that are used in small amounts to actually regulate critical functions in the body. Manganese regulates um, production of the seed. Basically, sperm, uh, yeah, uh, it's essential for for um, numerous functions, but it also is involved in the, um, the, the generation or the genesis of cells and um, mobility of mobilizing of iron is part of that. So um, people that are iron deficient and generally are suffering from a manganese deficient due to a manganese deficiency in the food they're eating due to that massive over application of Roundup to all of the soils in the United States. Um, as, as would be my best guess, as far as what I can understand, how, what I understand, I see happening in the population and from the food, I can infer where the, the different deficiencies are coming from generally. So, because um, uh, I've done this or seen this, and um, we we would be growing these crops, but we'd be feeding them to to pigs and chickens and turkeys, and so we, I kind of already had to work my way through how to fix these problems in populations, large populations of animals. So that's where I'm deriving my assumption or my, my diagnosis in relation to this. Um, would that, was that, did that make sense or was it just word salad? No, no, no. It's, it's interesting you say that because when you say manganese, is that the same thing as magnesium? No, manganese. Manganese is magnesium is um, is Mg, manganese is Ma. Okay. Um, manganese is right next to iron on the periodic table, and it's used as um, it's used as a mechanism for basically regenerating iron in the blood. So when you when you shift between having oxygen and no oxygen, there's these two different states that um, iron can be in, and uh, manganese is involved in that. Um, that regeneration cycle, that regeneration cycle. And is there a food source that gives you that type of supplementation or, or is there a supplementation that you can take since it's so crucial, I guess, to people who might be quote unquote iron deficient? It's funny that you mentioned that or you asked. Uh, yeah. So I live currently here in Gilroy, California on seven acres of pomegranates. And I can say this, I thought I was infertile. Uh, my entire life and um, I'd never been able to have conceive a child with anyone 
and I moved to this this pomegranate orchard, and uh, my wife and I immediately got pregnant. Really. And after she had her first child, she got pregnant immediately again. So, um, thing is, this is an organic pomegranate orchard that hasn't had anything sprayed on it. Uh, over, over, it's been here for what, about 12 years now. So, um, started eating the palm. We both started eating the pomegranates and drinking the juice and. What I learned about it was the seeds seem to have some ability to um, increase or support the generation of testosterone and estrogen. And manganese is generally found in high concentrations in seeds. They, it has to be there for the seed to form in the first place. So um, chronic manganese deficiency has all, you know, a bunch of different issues. It does result in you know, iron deficiency. And it also results in the inability to generate um, sperm or, you know, reproduce. And that's one of the things that we noticed. We actually have the farms in the Midwest. We would actually have to switch off, switch off of using GMO food, uh, GMO crops. We'd have to switch back to what was known as conventional um, every few years or we could not get our animals to reproduce anymore. They wouldn't make any babies. Where the babies would be, they'd be non, they'd be non-viable. Yeah, the mortality and morbidity was so high it was not profitable. They had to do it. They had to do it. They wouldn't have done it if they didn't have to. Because the thing about it is, like in the Midwest, they hate having to. They love using Roundup, and the reason why is manifold. But basically, they the amount of acres that once one group of people, a small group of people, can manage is much larger. It allowed for the expansion of the size of your farm because you don't have to do the weeding, right? So you get to have one tractor go over the ground once, spray it instead of tilling it, and your weeding's done. So before, you'd actually have to have um, enough tractors to be able to till the ground in an amount of... You think about the difference in the speed of having to till the soil over to kill the weed, A, versus just dry over the top of it and spray this liquid in it. Think about the difference in the amount of energy and the amount of time and the amount of wearing your material, uh, your equipment. So what it allowed was for was one tractor to be able to actually do uh, pr- or to prepare and plant a much larger area of ground. Um, economic, and this is, the thing about it is this was a model that was created and it was then adopted so that Rabobank, where, you know, the, I think it's so funny, Rabobank is an agricultural bank, um, but basically you'd be able to get farm insurance if you had a plan for what your, your production plan, and you're like, well, I'm going to use this GMO seed and this tractor and this and that, you could have this model that you'd be able to get a loan from a bank from. And what's interesting about agriculture is that farmers make about 7% on the dollars. So that means they're like, they borrow $100,000 to make $7,000. <laughs> It's not I funny. Yeah, it's was a gambler, it's, and he, he came and was talking to the farm boss on one of the colonies of the six thousand acre farms, and uh, he's like he the the farmer told him the you know basically the math on uh, you know the likelihood of being successful and the profit ratios related to it, and the gambler literally said, "I would never take those odds." In fact, <laughs> the only reason why farmers can actually run a business. Crop insurance. 
this crop failure happens so often that if it were not for crop insurance paying for them when they failed, there would be zero money in growing America's food. Well, and the whole other tragic story is, you know, how those family farms have just been, you know, folded for whatever reason. It's, nowadays, it's not a very profitable industry. And the fact that if 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 your farm is downwind from some uh, Monsanto seed and it gets onto your crops and they come and test it and they see Montana, Monsanto stuff downwind, I mean, it's, they're, they're taking farms and emptying silos. It's, it's crazy, the whole commercial food industry is just very... Um, Great, great cutthroat industry, I must say. Like you said, they're they're growing all of our food, not all of our food. We get our wheat from well, other food from other places, but yeah, it's it's a very cutthroat industry, man. It, no, see, what's interesting about wheat, though, um, a lot of people you've heard of still everyone's like, oh, I got an allergy to wheat. I have celiac disease and this and that and the other damn thing. Uh, it's not an allergy to wheat, believe it or not. What it is is it's an allergy to glyphosate, and you go, well, they don't use Roundup Ready wheat on everything right it's, it's, it's they just they grow wheat um they'll do, do a winter wheat and the way that they plant it basically everything dies and the wheat comes back first right so they don't have to do it but the thing about it is they use roundup in the harvesting of wheat not in the planting meaning that when it's ready to harvest they drive over the crop and spray it with roundup to kill it so that it all dries down there's an evil even finish on it so that everything's the same level of dryness so that uh, it makes it easier to basically pack it. So after they harvest the crop, they put it in a silo and they run air through it. They do this, what's called a dry down. They dry it down to a specific amount of moisture to try and inhibit mold. And so the, the, the Roundup is used in, a, in wheat. They spray it literally over the surface of the wheat right before they finish it. And there's no regulation of this for like, you know, even if you're growing organic wheat, um, this one farmer told me, Joe, you know what the difference between organic, uh, you know why organic food costs you so much? And I'm like, why? He's like, it costs more to spray pesticides in the dark. To spray pesticides to, oh, in the dark. Wow. So the, the thing about it, when it comes to wheat, <clears throat> the people that have this allergy, think that they have this allergy, what it is, is actually the glyphosate. Now, glyphosate. The only organism, it's interesting, the, the gene that they put into the crops that makes it so where they can harvest the wheat um, or where the plants can survive, or rather, uh, the application of glyphosate came from um, uh, an organism of uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which ex, uh, ex, exudes an extracellular pro, um, protease called glypase, which basically breaks down the glycine phosphate bond. Um, and so the, I did these tests. I was having this argument with this chemist over Facebook. One of these guys, it was a chemist for Monsanto. And he's, he's like, no, Monsanto. He's like, no, glyphosate's totally safe. And Roundup Ready is totally fine. This and that and the other thing. I'm like, uh, I'm pretty sure that's not the case. So I decided to do an empirical study in relation to it. I took glyphosate and I put it in, applied it in accordance to the federal law to an area of ground. And, um, I took samples from the area of ground that wasn't treated with it. And, uh, well, I put the, I did an extract, which is that there's these, these, uh, have these, what, uh, these biolog, uh, microbial incubation plates, which we use to evaluate the, uh, the biological community in a soil. And I have 34 different agar wells in triplicate. And so I take an extract of the soil to extract all the cells from it. And then I, I, 
uh, kneel it out, right? Plate, plate it out onto this agar, uh, into this agar solution, and then you inject in all the different wells. And uh, each one of the 40, 34 different wells is a different balance of nutrients that specifically identifies the presence of a different type of um, cellular respiration and can infer the presence of a different organism. So uh, on the one on the on the side that had been treated with glyphosate, the only well that showed any activity was the putrescine well, and the putrescine well is a well that. Uh, indicate it's basically decaying human tissue or mammalian flesh tissue. That was the only well that became active. So literally, what that means is the only organisms that survived in the soil after the application of glyphosate are human pathogens that specifically will attack human tissue. And um, given the fact that the gene that allows that was installed in the plants allows them to ex basically exude a, an enzyme that dissolves human tissue, connective tissue. Um, that makes sense, right? Um, but what is, doesn't make sense is why are we putting something into our crops that the response to the application of the herbicide is that they exude an enzyme that will literally dissolve our connective tissue. And then people wonder why they have an allergy when they ingest this stuff. Well, it kills off all your bi your microbiome in your gut. Allows you to, well, do all, a whole bunch of essential things like you know blood clotting, uh, vitamin K, E. coli, in your intestine. Yes, you don't no E. coli, no blood clotting. All the precursors for happiness, like for serotonin, they come from bacterium in your your gut. Without those organisms, well, you might need antidepressants, buddy. Well, and that's what we talk about so much on the show, Joseph. Like, it's not even a puzzle. Like, how many times do we have to get punched in the face? We realize we're in a fight. Like, none of this is by accident. Like you just said, like, why are we allowing in, in our commercial food industry this shit, these chemicals into our food that's doing this to our connective tissue, amongst other things? And again, going back to what I was saying before, and I've said many times, that revolving door of the shit we eat, and then we get into the uh, the pharmaceutical industry, and you know, it just continues. We just keep going in that circle. It's absolutely insane. And there's and there's literally no legal recourse, like not to, well, whatever. It's like you said, there's so much money there's from all these companies, from the pharmaceutical people. companies, the agriculture, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Agricultural companies in our politics, all of this, and it's all continuing to keep kicking this can down the road while we're just getting sicker and sicker. And the third leading cause of death in the United States is, you know, a doctor's care, whether it's overprescribed prescriptions, et cetera. I mean, it's, we're, we're all living these just as poisonous lives and these people who are doing this to us. Yeah, my, my, my father was a fireman paramedic for LA city for like uh, 35 years. And he's like, you know what he called doctors? Overpaid professional killers. Pretty much. I mean, I mean and then honestly, I mean, that's, like, that's pretty much what it is. Yeah, I mean, we, we know what, I mean, again, none of this is hidden. Everything you just enumerated about what is so essential in our food industry, the glyphosate and all of the shit that they're doing to our food, we know what it is and we know what's happening to us. But for somehow, some way, there's this huge disconnect from the, the fact that this is happening and some level of accountability to these companies. It just doesn't fucking happen because we're the crazy conspiracy theorists or whatever, even though the information what? is right in front of us. Do you want to know the mechanism by which this has been made possible from what I can tell? See, the thing about it is I have no education in agriculture. I have no official degree in anything. 
here's the thing. That's the only reason why it could be possibly credible in this situation. The reason why is in order to get a degree in any subject or topic, you're going to get a student loan. So you're going to get a doctorate in it or PhD. And by the time you get out, the only people that will be able to afford to pay you a living wage with your cost of your, um, in, your education and the interest on top of it is going to be a company in the industry that literally uh, regulates what is taught in those univer- relative, you know, related, uh, related universities, yeah. regulates what's taught in those universities by uh, you know, supplying funding. So when you get out, if you go against, you don't have a career. Team, yeah, you don't have a career once you get out, and you can't default on your debt on a student loan debt. So everybody that has a degree is literally just allowed to talk on it with, with with any sort of an authority is beholden to the interests that literally regulate their industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, an, it's just an assembly that, that line. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, legally, if you're going to speak from a, from a legal perspective, there is absolutely no, nobody that is a professional in any field in the United States that is not, does not have an over, um, does not basically rendered in to rendered to be not credible. We can't really even rely on anything they say because no. they have a conflict of interest. Their conflict of interest really prevents them from speaking against um, the industry which they work in. Cucks so, of the cucks of the industry is the best way to put it. You're absolutely right. Their whole livelihood, their whole tenure, their whole, you know, all of their careers is based on perpetuating these lies. Well, then I've met a lot of good people that have refused to go along with it, and they they can't say they can't talk against it that they won't. They, they play the game as good as they can and try and do what's right. Um, but a lot of people, I can't tell you how many people that I've met that were either nurses or doctors that refused to be involved in the profession anymore. Well, and, and like these you said, people are the people that when are you're, the brightest individuals. Yes. Well, like you said, once you get so deep down the rabbit hole and so entrenched into the system, you your livelihood is based off your ability to go along, to get along. You can't speak out once you've, you know, like I said, been so entrenched and then all of a sudden you get lack of a better term woke or you wake up to how you know what you've been fed is nonsense and it's it's crazy man it's it's all organized crime it seems like i'm sorry but patrick you're back with us he was having some mic issues and i was gonna before we let you slide i was gonna ask a question but pat if you're here do you want to ask that question would you fit it's so important yeah no i think it's super important that we get down to the uh kind of the brass tacks about look about the process of getting to the level of molecular restructuring and purification of water that your unit seems to be able to do. And the fact that you not only had to be intelligent enough to think this up to create the device, but then you had to create the devices to do the testing to prove that your theories were actually correct. Yeah, well, the good thing about, um, I was talking about Euclid, right? And and, uh, the elements is that like, it's just science. So once you understand the principles, how, how everything works, it's just, it's application of what's of known, known principles. And all of the devices that we use for analytical testing are, ba- are based off of, in some, some way or another, you know, um, those, those, those same principles. So the one issue that we have with water, of course, is 
our, our way that we basically determined the chemical structure of water is we took a laser and we a high power laser and we shot it and we thought looked at the emission absorption and emission pattern of it and we said oh, okay uh, basically the the light that shot out after we zapped it with the laser we said okay that's that tells us what it's made out of but I don't think that that's accurate I think we missed something actually really really important um, and that's the whole thing with emission now, if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum right um, you have a, uh, what is it? Was it has it has a frequency and it has a wavelength, and the frequency times the wavelength is equal to the speed of light, which is whatever. And you go equals mc squared, but supposedly a photon does not have any mass. So if a photon has no mass, then it doesn't matter what you multiply um, multiply it by, what velocity you multiply it by. There's no energy in it, and if that were true, that would mean that no solar panel works at all, ever. It can't because there's no mass to to carry the energy to actually initiate the, the photovoltaic response. So in that sense, either E, e equal MC squared is wrong or um, a wave of light has a mass behind it. But basically, and if that's true, you have to say, well, well, where's the mass coming from? So if you look at combustion of hydrogen and oxygen, what is called rocket fuel, have the combustion process uh, with hydrogen, two hydrogen molecules combust, and uh, well, you have four oxygen, four hydrogen combust with um, two oxygen molecules, creating two moles or two two molecules of uh, H2O. Um, and the thing about that is, is that can't possibly be right, because um, there's, in chemistry there's this thing called electronegativity, where you have um, every element has a certain it's constant created by Linus Pauling. Uh, but every element has a certain amount of uh, force by which it reaches out and tries to grab electrons from other things around it. And for hydrogen and oxygen, they're up at the top of the table with that. Um, but hydrogens is 2.1, oxygens is 3.6. And so that means the oxygen molecules would want to actually, if you had H2O, if there was H2O, the two oxygen molecules would actually grab onto each other and kick the hydrogens off because they're combined 3.6 plus 3.6, you know, 6, 7.2 on um, what electronegativity value gives them enough strength to actually complete their shells together with just two elements or two, it's two oxygen, um, an oxygen, oxygen bond. And it's a stronger bond than they would have it. It's just one oxygen to two hydrogen. Um, so there's no way that really the two hydrogen molecules uh, the H2O could be H2O. If it was H2O, you'd be able to actually light it on fire, but it's not. Um, what I think is happening is during the combustion, where you have hydrogen, hydrogen, and oxygen combusting, that literally a, a nucleus is shot out from one of the hydrogen molecules, and we end up with a, um, a different structure. Um, when I did, was doing this imaging of, of water, I saw the, you know, what is known as 105.4 degree um, hydrogen bond that is, um, you know, just basically alluded to by, you know, the testing we've done. But the difference was with the method that I used, I actually saw those two bonds with the hydrogen as interference patterns, um, which would mean that the two hydrogen molecules were in a kind of a, what I'm inferring from that is that literally one of the two hydrogen molecules doesn't have a nucleus, but it's actually a, what is known as a muon. 
And um, the H2O is actually, uh, H2O is not water. It's, um, we have one that's basically uh, the proton or the light that comes out of the combustion of hydrogen oxygen. And that pro- the, the nucleus that is shot off from that, it's basically like uh, leaves us with kind of um, something in a state of a superposition of being there and not there. And it's interesting because when you want to turn H2O back into, you know, hydrogen and oxygen, you have to pump a massive amount of electricity into it that, from my testing, shows that suspiciously, basically you have to pump enough electrons in it back into it to create a proton, which would suggest that you're having to replace a proton in H2O molecules to turn it back to H2 and O again. So I'm sorry, when when you say like H2O is not water, is that like all water? Like we get obviously water from different sources as we talked about earlier. Qualify that a little bit. Um, well, nobody's ever actually found much H2O whenever they look for it. It's, um, when they do look for it, find it, what they say is it's, uh, it's a hydroxyl atom. Uh, it's hydroxyl atom. And a hydro, it's a hydroxyl molecule and a hydronium and an atom. Um, so it's, uh, and I forget the positives and negatives on it. I've been switching back between electrical engineering and chemistry, so you'll have to forgive me if I get this wrong. Well, so who, where uh, did whoever get the whole single hydrogen atom and two oxygen atoms? Where did that particularly come from? I'm sorry, what? Where did they get the whole notion that, you know, water was a single hydrogen atom and two oxygen atoms to create, you know, H2O? Like, oh, where- yeah, that's, that's, by firing a bunch of protons at it. an x-ray spectrometry like literally they they cook off the electrons and they create a stream of protons they fire it at water and they use it to fire it at a water molecule and they use that to image the hydrogen oxygen bond so literally i'm saying the water molecule was missing a proton when it was formed and you imaged it by by shooting a bunch of protons at it maybe you just replaced the proton in it and that's what you're seeing Yeah, Pat, you're right. My mind's blown. <laughs> so, so let's get to the let's get to the unit because uh, I really think okay, so we we want people to understand, you know, the pressure of the water going through it. There's no power to the unit. You know, all these all these things. What comes out the other side? You know, it's so important. The six pointed molecular structure of it, the halo of light around it, all that good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So. One of the techniques that have been called pseudoscience that I do not think is pseudoscience is, uh, have you heard of like people doing, um, taking pictures of auras or uh, it's Carillion photography, So it's called. And sure. there's a device called the GDV, or Gas Discharge Analyzer. It was created by a doctor, I think it was created by, I may be wrong on this, by Dr. Krishna Madhapad. And he did a bunch of research on, uh, originally I think it was um, fluid from bodies, like uh, fluid like blood or whatever. So um, when you look at the blood, you, he would shoot light at it, really just flash it with high-intensity light, and then he would take a picture of it like millions of a second afterwards. And what he would see is, is that there was a variance in the size of this ring of light that would be created effectively by the, um, the charge of the, the central nucleus being attracted to the light, basically. It would grab it and would pull it into to like a circular pattern caused it to orbit around the, the elements or around the molecule of blood 
for just a, a little small, short amount of time, right? And he said, okay, well then, he, what he was inferring or stating was is that the healthier the cell was, the more light that it would actually be able to capture and would be captured and would be going around it. And so people started applying this technique to water as well. And um, so that technique, one of the first things that I did when I designed the unit that I'm using now, which I didn't get to the whole thing where uh, when I initially did the testing, I, I then, my, the farmer that I did the test the field on, he ordered four more devices. Well, only one of those additional four units that we ordered actually even worked. And so I tried to get a replacement. I wanted to talk to the guy that was behind this because I didn't know what the hell was going on with this. I'm like, this device shouldn't work, and it does. I don't know what's going on here. I need to figure this out. I was really annoyed um, because everything that I knew had been thrown out the window by this single test. Well, when I tried to talk to the scientist behind it, I drove out to Arizona to meet with him, and he refused to meet me with me, where he didn't take my call. He knew I was coming, um, and I did this test that actually verified the function of his unit, but then he wouldn't meet with me. And then every I started listening to some of the talks that he had given, and I'm like, this guy's a pseudoscience, and he has, knows absolutely nothing about, like, actually knows really nothing about science or, um, you know, chemistry or physics from what I can tell. And he's talking to a bunch of people that are like, you know, really into spirituality and this and this, that, the other thing. I'm like, this guy's selling a religion, not not a product. And just strangely enough, while I was there waiting to call to meet with a guy, and he uh, didn't, wasn't taking my call, this woman walked up to me and she's like, "You're not from here, are you?" I'm like, "No." And she's like, "What are you doing here?" And I'm like, "I'm here to meet with this guy." Blah blah blah. And she's like, "Oh, don't meet with him. He's a." con artist he stole the te technology from my friend Rob Sandell <laughs> and I'm like you're kidding I'm like can I meet with this guy and she's like yeah so she set up a meeting with me with him that afternoon and I drove out to Cottonwood Arizona and met with him and I got to see all of the prototypes that were leading up to the device that he, he uh, eventually made um, and he had an explanation for it that I didn't really believe it or get or understand and i'm like that's kind of bullshit he said it was all just a bunch of frequencies and i'm like okay i'm dealing with this stuff i'm dealing with in that case the thing about it was he was right but he didn't know why he was right um but based upon what i learned from him or inferred from it i didn't quite get it uh what was going on with how to make the unit but based upon what he told me I'm like, well, it's, what he's saying is in any way correct from the way parts of it that I agree with, then I, it would be better if we built the unit like I came up with a different design for it. And um, the different design when we tested it on the GDP had a 10 times increase in the volume of light that it would actually pick up um, in the GDP. And I was like, oh, well, I guess this is better. And the problem that I had is I had no really way of actually quantifying the effect that we we're having other than techniques that weren't really used. I could see or see the effect in populations of animals or in plants over time, but we didn't have a mechanism that by which we could define this is causing this, which is causing that. And I'm like, even though people were pushing or started a group of, a group of people with initial people that came out to do the testing, uh, when they did the testing in the strawberry field, started manufacturing my design and uh, are trying to and a bunch of people copied them and a bunch of people copied them and it got to the point where there's a bunch of these water units out everywhere 
and none of them actually worked because none of them actually copied the correct design. And I've gone back and tested them, and they don't work. They don't work. They aren't doing what they're supposed to. And I, I mean, I know why. It's because the people that were building them didn't understand the physics behind their 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 operation and how they had to be manufactured to generate that effect. Um, they thought, you know, I can just drop drop a bunch of crystal balls in a in a, in a tube and it will work. It's like it'll do something, but it's not stable. So, um, one of the things that I was doing developed this technique which i call it's a john zahn spectrometry and it's based off of what is known as a zahn cup it's created by this um created by a chemist slash physicist i think it was a specifically he was studied fluid dynamics and uh it's used to measure the viscosity of a solution it's this cup and you pour water into it and the cup has a hole of a specific size and you measure the rate of flow amount of time that it takes for that water to drop or drain out of the cup and you measure how much water is left in the hole based on its size of the hole um, uh, is only going to allow so much water to drain out if it gets to the point where the literally the attraction of the liquid to the sidewalls can't overcome the resistance of being forced through that hole then it will stop at that point and then you have a way of um, inferring the difference between the force of gravity pushing, trying to push it down, and the attraction or the charge of the attraction of that solution to uh, the sidewalls and itself as a resistance. And then you can make inferences as to um, the, what is known as the adhesion, which is a, a, some, a liquid's attraction to something else, and the adhesion, which is its attraction to itself. And so what I did was I used this cup to create effectively a lens out of liquid um, so as to properly describe the bonding angles and attraction between them. And so then by shooting different types of light through, I can actually um, make uh, several different determinations, but it's actually able to image the hydrogen-oxygen bond. But the hydrogen appears as an interference pattern, which means that there's this oscillation that's happening between those positions where the hydrogen is supposed to be, which is... I'm taking as to mean that one of them isn't a hydrogen molecule. Um, but I could, that's a lengthy explanation, so I'll stay away from that. But the 104 5.4 degree bond angle has some interesting properties. One of the tests that I did, I was shooting light through the, the, this, this lens made out of water, effectively, and I was comparing the structured versus the unstructured water. And I got a diffraction grating when I shoot pure light through, like white light through, that creates the primary three primary colors. So I got red, green, and uh, red, green, and blue. The structured water created us instead of a three circles of red, green, and blue, created a tetrahedron made out of a bluish white light. And I'm just about fell over. And I don't know if Actually, you just said this. Does the type of light matter? You said, I think you said it was white light, but if it was like infrared light or another light <clears throat> spectrum, does that change the subsequent effect on, does the type of light have any bearing on anything? Yeah, the frequency of the light. So light, uh, water is a polar molecule and light can be polar or um, it can be nonpolar. So it, it, it's the spin of the light effectively determines how what kind of image is going to be spit out on the other end. Whether it's it has a spin in one direction or the other, or both directions, 
at it, it literally affects the way that the, the, the light image, the way that the light is moving determines, affects its interaction with the liquid lens and thus the image that's spit out on the other side. Mm-hmm. And that's why this is useful. I can use different frequencies of light with different polarities to actually image different aspects of that water to actually determine different things from it. So um, that's why this is useful. So if I use the full spectrum, all the different frequencies of light, right, then I'm going to get, there's going to be a whole bunch of different, those frequencies are going to go through that water molecule and they're going to to interact with all the bonds and it's going to spit out something that's different uh, through the interference between the wavelengths hitting each other. It'll spit out a different pattern than if I have a singular frequency of light traveling through at a specific wavelength, right? Then it will only image things that are in a resonant resonance or with that um, resonance with, uh, with, with with that oscillation of frequency and that is in the light because actually in resonance with the molecule, it will hit it and it will bounce off. If it's not in resonance with the molecule, then it will pass through, right? It won't interfere with it. So you have to have a corresponding resonance of either some harmonic of that um, the uh, some harmonic of the gap between the hydrogen and the oxygen molecule to have any sort sort of interaction. That's why some frequencies can travel through some things and can't travel through other things, or it can be amplified or can be reflected by different substances. It has to do with the specific frequency that's being generated and how that interacts with the the barriers of that physical structure. It's just like if you can think of it like you have a chain link fence. And I have a golf ball. I can throw that thing straight through. If I have a basketball, it's going to bounce off. It's basically the same thing. Well, and really when you when you, when you talk about frequency and its effect on physical structure, I've always found super fascinating. Like when I watch the the cymatic videos, um, you know, these particles placed on you know whatever kind of platform, or and then you hit it with a certain frequency, and it creates these geometrical patterns. It's absolutely insane. Oh it, yeah, I have some things I should show you. I, one of the things I designed that I thought was made, was awesome, I actually learned this from microorganisms, um, was I built this device that was, I, there's a lot to it, but I'll just stay simple with it. But I, it's, it's like kind of like those somatic devices that other people use, but it was built out, it modeled after what is known as the nitrogenase enzyme. The nitrogenase enzyme is what's used to split charged atmospheric like gases into individual nitrogen molecules, which is then used to code human DNA. Like, um, it's the beginning of the process of generation of the program for life is that enzyme that does that. So I created a speaker based upon that design uh, to be able to actually break chemical bonds using sound and process raw minerals into highly valuable, soluble states. Like, so I can take mine minerals, not have to use chemical processes, um, but instead actually use sound to break apart the chemical bonds and move it into a solution. And thus I wouldn't be adding anything to it. Thus I wouldn't be, uh, it would be allowed to be sold as an organic fertilizer, right? So that was the reasoning behind it. But what I learned how to do with the device is actually pump water with it. So I'm able to literally create, um, if you look at sound itself, it has a positive pressure wave and a negative pressure wave. So you have an area where it's creating a void. So with some, there's some uh, systems of, for mathematics where you can actually create, use multiple waves of different frequencies to actually create complete structures or defined structures. Um, so using those, those um, formulas, I was able to actually create 
effectively a pump that was made out of positive and negative pressure waves that would extend through the whole length of a pipe and pump water all the way through it, which is where I got my idea for how uh, water or the heart actually works. Um, just more so anyways, never mind. Uh, but it is, it is fascinating. I can send you some videos that I was able to, I, I can, I'm a proficient with the, the concept and the, the idea enough to where I can use it to circulate water in, in either direction inside of a cup, you know, or, um, or inside of a, a tank or whatever, and just using resonant sound frequencies. And it's actually very, very efficient. I've seen people have um, motors and propellers. Well, but if you don't have to have a prop at all, you know, that would be the ideal situation. So it's one of the things I'd like to work on when I get, after I get done launching, uh, a lot, putting the, the water, water structuring devices I'm building once I put them out. And again, I started, I, I actually put myself and dedicated this myself to actually building these units because of the number of people that copied the technology and proved, produced devices that didn't work. And I started looking online and seeing these different credible scientists actually debunking what these pseudoscientists that were selling copies of my units were selling things. And I'm like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm like, people are literally getting ripped off by a copy of something that I made that did work. And the entire science is being completely discredited. I put a lot of work into figuring this out. And I set out with a goal of actually disproving it. I, <laughs> I built the devices to be like, well, if this is true, then, then, uh, if this isn't true, then if I do this, this won't work. And if it does, then I guess it's right. But it ended up working. So I've always gone from at science and testing as I'm trying to disprove what I think may be happening. So when I think something might be happening, I go, well, how can I prove that isn't the case? Well, and that is the and effort, that's that's the essence of the scientific method, is it not? Like, you know, well, it's not the way people do science anymore. Uh, now science has <laughs> the way you do science is you say, I give me a bunch of money and I will go ahead and say uh, whatever will be most profitable for your company. And um, because I'm a scientist, you can't question me. Which then becomes the real pseudoscience, quite frankly, because it's all like you said. Well, it's like, this is the thing. I got into studying science because I wanted to understand things. I really had, I was raised by um, evangelical Christians, I guess you could say. And I could not accept the concept of just believe this. I'm like, no, I don't want to operate off belief. I, I like the concept of being agnostic, which means I, I work off what I know and I can prove and I can sense and I can determine to be true. Um, to me, it's like if there is a God, then all of the laws of nature are his language and his rules. And those are the rules that exist. That's the truth. That is the fact. That is the truth. And so for me, science is my religion. But in a different way, not in a way to where people say, well, I believe this and I will not challenge it, but rather the challenging of things and determination of truth is the mechanism by which, you know, you express, I practice, you could say I could practice my religion, which would be, I'd say, if I have a religion, it's truth, you know, um, and understanding this world. That's what I believe in doing. <laughs> if I believe in doing anything, it's like figuring out what's going on. It would probably be the first thing anybody should be doing in any situation. And I still feel like I'm working on step one of that. Um, but finally, I feel like I have a basis on which I can move forward on, um, given what I understand now about what's happening with water. <laughs> I feel like I finally learned it wasn't until I was like, what, I think 40 years old, I learned the first thing that I actually could know to be true. And um, 
so I, I feel like I have a basis to work off of now. But it took me that long just to get to a point where I could feel like I had a proper reference, a frame of reference to be even begin to be able to study anything. So, anyways, um, so much. So it's, I'd like to get to a couple of points when it comes to human health yeah. and plants. And I'll send you. Go ahead and send you after we're done. I'll send you all the, the data that I collected in relation to this. One, the structured water actually donates energy current to your cells. The unstructured water takes energy away from your cells. So I have this, I did this with a, by putting a, um, basically using a, a multimeter to determine the charge flow between my hand um, holding one probe and putting the other probe into the water. So one of these, one of these donates charge, the other one takes it away and the difference is around just, just a bit over 60 millivolts. But when you multiply that 60 millivolts by the trillions of cells in your body, it becomes quite significant. Um, yeah, and do you, you, you test, you, you test uh, for wattage on your device as well. It's not plugged into anything. And what, what have you found in terms of wattage or voltage that it's producing um, when, you, when you test it? Um, so I've, I've done different testing and I've used different testing methods. So I've used the context list, the contact free testing method where you have a device that you point at the device and it measures basically bending in the magnetic fields. And I've, um, I'll send you the video on it. You tell me what you see, what, what you think, but it was like, you know, over like, uh, I think it was like two, uh, about 240 volts on the house unit. And, um, yeah, it's significant. So that one determines the voltage, which is basically the uh, system pressure, but it doesn't necessarily uh, determine the wattage. So you have to make an inference on, on to what that would be. Um, when I use a, a oscilloscope to test a the three quarter inch one house, it's a one inch unit, it's a one inch body with a three quarter inch flow through or half inch, half inch the flow through. Um, I measured uh, upwards of 383 volts um, at a baseline of uh, 60 psi with a three-quarter inch, uh, three-eighths inch feed hose. So um, you can extrapolate what that would be. Um, yeah, and so then when you when you when you say, for instance, test the the skin surface of someone who has not been drinking this water out of your device, and then test them you know, afterward, what, what is the difference there per, you know, square inch or whatever, however you uh, measure that? So it, I'd be, do the test by placing the, the probes one, uh, a centimeter approximately apart from each other on the surface of the skin. Um, and the difference that I, I was able to read on both my wife and I, which I've never seen anyone else like this, um, but was like we're literally have over a million ohms of resistance in their, their skin surface. Um, the standard ohmic resistance of an individual is, is between three and 10,000, depending on how much sweat or moisture they have. And, you know, the concentration of uh, charge carriers or sweat or salts in their sweat. Uh, but three to 10,000 is, is the, the generally accepted um, levels that we measure. Yeah, and what do, what do you see in yield-wise with with you know with crops with your device, say for instance? You know, there's there's so much to yield that there is to understand, which is the genetics, sure. the location on the planet, um, the the 
uh, how like the location of the, the plant genetics. It's history. It's recent history as far as where the experiences, the experiences its parents had, literally, um, the type of soils planted in versus the time it was cultivated in, the um, altitude, the start of you know the free, the, the angle of light, the the, the uh, latitude and longitude on the planet, because um, it's literally you can think of the leaves are angled of different plants are angled at different different in different directions, right? And those are going to, depending on where your longitude and latitude is on the planet, have a varying, a varying, um, a, a varying proper orientation to the sun. You can think of and going back to that season. sacred geometry. And the sun throughout the season, the, the concentrations of um, different wavelengths changes as well. So there's a lot to it. So I can say that what I've seen, what I will say that I can say very confidently um, is that I've seen an increase in the overall health of whatever crop it is I, I, I'm growing um, because literally what constitutes improvement um, if I'm saying that I have a product that is going to actually help everyone everywhere then it actually has to actually have a different function everywhere and so explaining why that is possible is kind of really the, the thing that i'd like to, is, is is it's a million dollar question um i've seen one of the tests that we did in canada was in a hog barn and their goal was to get to market earlier with a lower key feed conversion um have a higher weight no antibiotics and um no mortality morbidity they wanted uh, to have a, get the highest grade meat without any you know mortality is basically the animal dies morbidity means that uh, the animal so sick or the other issues with its overall health makes it unsuitable for slaughter. Um, and it, you can't really use it as meat. It's just not, not worth processing. Um, and so with that system, we literally tripled the profits from that farm on hogs. Wow. On an annual basis. Sounds like Upwards, guys... the higher, highest uh, results I've seen in in, from a crop was from rhubarb where we got a seven times increase in production per acre average over i think it was about 30 acres and we had a six time increase in actual nutrient density which would be the bricks content um, which i talked about in the beginning how i did the initial measurement of the bricks or the sugars and the strawberries so um when i do testing and i, re I give test results uh, i don't i haven't ever i don't go out to sell the units what I do is I'll interact with the farmer and I'll say, I'll say, well, I'm having this problem or this and that, and I'll extrapolate if, if my, I think the device that if I think I know of a way that I can help them. I'll say, well, I think this may work. And then I will do a test. And if the test works, then they buy the technology from me or they, you know, whatever. Right. So this has always been the way that I conducted or collected data. I don't ever really want to be involved in the collection of results when it comes to, um, something i have a financial interest in it so i'll only ever do those sorts of interactions as a doing a test initially because originally i didn't really know exactly how my device was working what benefit it was uh, was creating or how to even know what to price it at what it would be whether or not it would be worth the person paying the money for the device and installing it on their field and then using it whether the money they would pay me for that would actually ever be able to be recovered 
Um, and until I could actually do that, I couldn't really be, I didn't know, couldn't really be like, oh, hey, here's something that might help you, might not, but uh, give me some money. That's just not a very, I don't think that's ethical. I don't think it's appropriate. Well, it sounds like you're working with some game-changing stuff, so, um, Joseph, without a shadow of I a doubt. I've been working to collect data and just trying to get to the point where I'm certain as to what the device even does, how it does it, and be able to prove that before I felt like I could really launch the product into the market because everything that I've ever sold in the market, I, they, I do a value-added um, proposition, which is you give me X amount of dollars, and if you give me X amount of dollars for this product and you use it, then you are increasing the profitability of your business by Y. And if you can't do that, then you're a con artist, in my opinion. Right? Well, you're you're, um, up, you're up against a you know a tough business with the ag business, but or not just the ag business, but um, yeah, it sounds like you're on to some game changing stuff. Patrick has joined us up. I feel like we've kept you for so long. And hopefully, it's not an inconvenience, man. This has been seriously, Pat. You are you are correct. This has been mind blowing stuff, man. On such a simple substance as water, so fascinating. Well, it's I don't know simple. And sophisticated are two different things. Um, it's not that what, what what water is is really defined by the things it interacts with. And you look at the table of the elements and all the things that can draw into solution. It has to be able to change its structure to be able to cause all those things to interface with each other. So thinking it has one structure, in my opinion, is absurd. How could you possibly draw that conclusion based on what we all know? All the things we know can draw into solution. Well, and and the, the fact that you ask questions constantly and question your own beliefs constantly is something that I've believed in for a long time to end up coming to conclusions um, or down the right path or the path of complete contrary beliefs to the mainstream, no matter what the subject matter is. And in terms of your intelligence level, quantum physics, astrophysics uh, and, and everything else that you're that you're doing and your level of understanding, I mean, most people can't comprehend because once they get that PhD, that doctorate, uh, you know, the degree in agronomy or whatever it is, uh, they, they many times just kind of come to the conclusion that they've learned everything there is to learn besides a little bit of continuing education on a, a new pharmacy product or whatever it is, right? Well, again, I addressed this in the beginning. It's the problem with it's not their fault. Everybody's got, we all got screwed. And I feel bad for everyone that got a degree and paid money for an education for the current system because it taught them to memorize things, not how to learn, not how to understand. They right. know all these facts, but they have no they weren't trained in how to actually apply knowledge well. So it, it's only 10 percent of the population has both the left and right brain. And only those individuals will actually be able to benefit from our educational system as it is. The rest of them will be have been robbed. Because if you're one of the people that primarily can just memorize things but can't re can't apply that information uh, in a diverse and changing environment, then you were, I mean, you got you spent a bunch of time you memorizing information, and then you're put in a system situation where you're supposed to apply it when that's not your capacity. I mean, they screwed you over. They set you yeah, down and, a life path of failure yeah, from and, the beginning. And I think explain again, because you've shown people how to put this device together. And if they're not both right and left brain uh, capable, that they, they'll put it together and it'll come apart when, when, it, when it 
well, it's, when you try to what run it has water to, it through. won't work. The thing is, is like people generally have different uh, different ways of seeing things. Um, the right brain people and the left brain people, um, they have different pat- way that they they inter- they interact with problems and different they they have different perspectives or ways of seeing the same thing. Kind of like the three blind men and the elephant analogy. Um, and so, because of that, they will see what they the aspect parts of it they will see. And they will organize or build a copy of what they can see, but they can't build a copy of the things that they don't see. And I'm three times as blind as any other individual. And that's why I know that the elephant um, is even bigger than I can tell you it is. Mm-hmm. Or we thought it's a bigger elephant than we thought. It's got a leg. It's got a huge side wall on one side. and It's got this trunk. And uh, yeah, depending on the position that I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for it at, it's, it's a completely different thing. And I don't think anyone's ever seen the whole side of the elephant. And that's the elephant in the room in physics and science. It's like. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be frustrating when you have conversations. No, uh, actually, I really who... love, I love having conversations, especially generally, I mean, if I'm interacting with somebody that's intellectually honest, they'll normally go, where the hell did you get your education? How did you learn all this? My freaking god and um it's normally really a really edifying and beneficial because i i enjoy helping i enjoy testing my own perspectives um and 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 i'm challenging them and and trying to discount them i i think that's fun i'm in an argument with myself you know it's like since i was a kid they talked about me believe in santa claus believe in the Easter bunny believe me in this and this and this and this and i figure the process of becoming an adult is throwing all the beliefs out and actually finding out what's true and that's that's the process of growth as an individual and i enjoy that um very very much so you know i mean what else is there to do you can rot into great decay or you can you can challenge yourself and you can get stronger and i feel like that's a fulfilling um philosophy or life path for me um, yeah well like i say the level of the level of education that you have self-education and knowledge that you have <clears throat> and the way your mind works you know but, but here we are like dealing, but here we are dealing with the general public that won't even look up and acknowledge you know chemtrails well i think a lot of people have a heart or how much stuff can people even really deal with on a day-to-day basis we all have so much going on in our own lives that sure uh, a lot of people have, we have this thing, if you look at even the way the human brain works, there's a massive amount of sensory information that's coming into your body right now. And your brain filters out between what it considers to be relevant and what it considers to be irrelevant. And it literally erases everything it considers to be irrelevant to the point where you can't even really see the things in your life and in your world that you haven't even recognized as being relevant. You it can be there your entire life and you wouldn't even notice them. Uh, that's you know, the capacity for human, uh, but we have to function that way because otherwise we'd be overloaded with information. That's one of the things that I think has been the, the most disempowering thing for the population in general is the overload of information. Nobody knows what to believe. And, and they go, what, what should I believe? And I, I, my answer is nothing at all. If you cannot deduce the truth of it based upon what you know to be real, what you can sense, then it's, I mean, I didn't know if you were signing up for religion, but you know what you might want to figure out who the preacher is and what their goals are for that, you know, for that church. Because um, knowing when to when to pass on the Kool Aid is going to be essential at some point. A lot, of, lot, lot like, of Joel Olsteins in science. Well, it, it seems to be all that science is used for is to sell people on a product 
and the per people that create that are marketing these products or in control of their you know of their distribution and paying for their uh, for their people looking at them or whatever they're, they're the people generally are doing this that are the business people they're only looking at getting money they aren't concerned whatsoever with uh, any benefit it might have to society and as a side effect they ended up having spent a whole lot of money in marketing now me personally when i started i, I was surprised when i started manufacturing these devices because i spent no money in marketing got swamped very quickly where i could not produce uh, enough units and uh so i i was um it was interesting because one of the people the reason when I well, basically at the end of 2020, a guy that had been selling units <laughs> for a decade, he's like, I can't, I'm not even sure if anything is these units work at all. Like I was talking so my friend, Dr. Michelle Veneziano, who's a, an osteopath up in um, Northern California. She's, she called me up one day and she's like, Joseph, I have this guy that um, I want you to talk to. And I'm like, yeah, she's he's like, well, he's been selling these uh, water destruction devices. And um, I told him that you're the person to talk to about it. The guy had been selling units for 10 years that didn't work. And um, he's like, I can't even be certain. So he brought me up to meet his um, step, his father-in-law, and uh, who's a who's also a medical doctor and he's the kind of person that doesn't believe in anything. And he's like, I haven't been able to get this guy to believe in structured water in 10 years. And I'm like, that's because, uh, well he's probably right. So he, we took one of the units that he'd been selling and I poured water, I ran water through it. And he's like, okay. I'm like, can you tell me any difference? He's like, and then I put one of the units that I built, ran the water through it. And he's like, that water, it's incredibly, it feels soft. And I'm like, taste it. He's like, it tastes sweet. I'm like, yeah. If you cannot feel and sense or see the differences in the effects of the water unit, you're running it through then why, what does it matter? And that's the thing is that so many people have been sold on these, the marketing. They didn't even bother to test to see whether or not they could even tell anything, tell any difference when they apply the tech, the quote unquote technology. And they're told, well, we got this test from this university or this person over here says that and this person over there says that. I'm like, well, who cares? Screw the experts. What do you experience? Is it helping you? then who cares what laboratory data you have? It doesn't matter. It's not going to help you in a practical and real sense. And if you can't tell the difference, why would you spend money on it? Right. And my right. answer is you shouldn't. So, so what So what I think we're going to do, what I think we're going to do, Joseph, is, uh, you know, once I get my hands on a unit, obviously we're going to be doing a lot of experiments with it. And, you know, not only yeah, on the so, farm, but also in our, in our bodies and, and, you know, really pay attention and, and chart kind of everything that happens and goes on and mixing it with powerful organic substances that we've got to, to not only help ourselves physically, but also the organics to grow, you know, massive gardens and, and uh, watch it all happen. So, yeah, the thing is I'm going, uh, I had made an agreement with that individual and he ended up, um, being the kind of person that could sell something for 10 years that didn't work and uh, not have too much of an issue with it. So we parted ways, but um, I, what the regional agreement I had with him, I'd start manufacturing devices for him to sell and he would start um, disseminating the science of how to test for the test, the function of units to 
to, to actually see what it was that I was had done, like the proof of proof, proof in the pudding. Here's how you test to find out if water units work. Here's how you determine um, or test for different properties that a bunch of different people are claiming uh, their their devices have. I'm like, everybody has claims that they have, and and they might use a university or this person or that person to say this, but uh, very few people actually, I haven't seen anyone actually pr provide real data with contact information to prove the prove that, sh that where it's like anything other than them saying that this happened. So what I, my goal has been is to literally provide people the tools and the information they need to understand how to test for different properties. Cause it's not that hard. It's not hard to understand. It's actually very, very simple. It's as simple as, you ever seen one of those toys where you have those boxes with the different shapes in it and you drop the shape into the box? Does it match? Does it not? It, that's, if you can do that, you can understand everything I have to say about water and its structure. It's just you have to break it down to a simple level and stop right. thinking about it as something complex or whatever. So um, later this week, I'm actually going to be doing a, a podcast or a video, video podcast with uh, an individual. And I'm going to be sharing um, or demonstrating some of the testing methods that I use to, to determine the effect of water um, structuring devices. And uh, my goal has been to educate the population on how to know for certain, how to find out for themselves, how to not trust. You don't have to trust anybody else. Here's how you do it. And, and to empower people to do that. And um, yeah, because that was my goal with this whole project. So beautiful. Um, I'm beautiful. done talking at this point. So I'm sorry. Um, no, no, thank you. And, and so what, you know, obviously we're, we're planning on getting these devices into a lot of people's hands, uh, a lot of people in agriculture, let them test them out and, and find out for themselves how these units work. I mean, proof's in the pudding, and we know we know uh, from a lot of the, th the conversations that I've had with other folks that uh, through frequency, you've talked, I've heard you, I've been on calls with you talking to, you know, experts in agriculture, and they understand and are tracking what you're saying, and they, they realize that you're certainly on to uh, – something very big here so we're excited and what we're going to do is after we test this this uh, device and uh, we get some results happening we're certainly going to have you back on and we're going to we're going to talk about those provable results and and go from there brother so if there's anything else you'd like yeah. to say as far as how people can contact you or a website or anything like that before we close up um please do um well i don't i'm not really i i if somebody has I think I'm going to be setting up a mechanism for contacting. Um, I guess you could contact anybody, the, the host of the show, um, and if you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to, in relation to, to contacting me, um, I I don't have an, a lot of time. But if you would like, if you have, want to have a question that you want answered, then I'd be more than happy to answer any question. Or if you want it, uh, yeah, and I'd be glad to talk yeah, about I'd, it. I yeah. just need to schedule that time into. Um, I need to make time for that. I'd be more than happy to talk to anyone about it, though, especially if you don't believe it or you disagree with it or you're, any question that you have in relation to it. Uh, I really do want people to understand this. There, there's more that I Hello? would say and I have to say about the structure of water and the tests that I've done and the significance of what those tests indicate, I mean, are actually really incredible. Um, right, right. I'd like to get that information out there. Um, and I want people to understand it because... Uh, if I can finish up uh, one statement, I know we, I went off on the agriculture way too long. I should have been staying focused on water. I, no, it's fine. It's fine. Generally, loquacious and tend to go off on tangents. So um, 
I apologize for that. Uh, no stress. But the the test, tech tests that I've done that um, I'm showing people how to reproduce, they, they indicate, again, the, this water donates energy to your cells. The water has a greater ability to hydrate um, complex mineral tissues, like causing swelling and bentonite. Um, it changes the crystalline structure. Uh, one of the other methods I was able to determine the change in the structure of the water is the way that it would deposit um, elements as that water dried out. So if the crystal structure of what dries out is different, it's because the solvent is holding it in uh, solution at, a, at different angles, right? That's how we're getting the difference in what they call a removal of lime scale to say people, oh, it's a water softener. It's not uh, a softener in the sense of the general softeners, which have an eye work on an ion exchange mechanism, pulling out the hard elements and replacing them with something that's highly soluble. What it does instead is it actually just increases the solubility or what would be known as auto ionization constant um, of the water in reference to specific elements, um, which a change in the bond angle would be necessary. But the one of the things that people I thought is most critical in relation to this is um, the change on the bond angle. And when I talked about the, the diffraction grading, the light splitting into the different primary colors, it's also generating ionizing radiation when it splits into, into that. So like the rainbow, literally the rainbow that's created in the sky is telling us that literally it's, it's generating auto ionizing radiation. So every droplet of water, you can think of it as a magnifying glass in the air that concentrates sunlight and creates little laser beams that blast holes in your DNA. And this is part of the reasoning, I, I believe, for um, this is what I was thinking about in relation to this. I had a thought is a long time. All the different ancient cultures have a, um, a great delusion um, story, like a story of uh, this firmament that was existed around the earth and how it dropped down to the earth and that before that time people lived for a very long time and they had very advanced societies because people lived long enough to learn things like learn a lot of stuff and that would explain how some maybe some of the uh, ancient structures were built because we had people that lived hundreds and hundreds of years they figured out how to do things that are far beyond our ability to comprehend now simply because none of us have had enough length of life or live long enough to be able to gain all an understanding with a wide enough breadth to really understand this physical world that we live in. Um, but it seems that that was a fact that people did live that long, and this is verified by records of, in multiple countries. The Chinese have an amazingly, uh, amazing history uh, that they've actually have going back much further than our Western culture, um, and they can verify these facts, these things yeah. as well. But and not to mention, not to mention that. Around, the firmament around the sky, if we did have a layer of structured water around the sky that wasn't in this 105.4 degree angle that refracts it and creates or effectively creates a lensing effect and, you know, ionizing radiation, then our atmosphere itself would have had far fewer free radicals in it. And then the die off of our cells or the shortening of our telomeres as a result, well, we would have lived longer. Um, and that makes sense to me. Um, a lot of sense. So I think that, uh, that that was one of the more significant things I realized about this is that um, when, it sh when I did the experiment that shows that the light was coming through, I was testing it and it showed that the 
if I shoot the light through the structured water, the amount of energy that's absorbed by that water is much, much greater, like uh, over two and a half times greater. So that's, if you can think about the water in the plant that's absorbing light from the sun, right? The light goes through that water and it collects that energy and it transfers it to the photovoltaic mechanism, the photocells, effectively the, uh, the photosystem, right? And there's a bunch of different types of effectively chlorophyll or photosystems that are designed to absorb electromagnetic energy from water. But if you look at them, they only have one little active site. And you go, well, how is that able to collect a wavelength of light? It's because that photosystem is interfacing with a bunch of liquid. And it's that liquid that is in the leaf that effectively is acting as a lens to direct that light into that chlorophyll molecule, right? And so when you talk about having a different bond angle and the light being the water that's acting as the collector for the photosystem having a greater absorption capacity, you're talking about the plants being able to absorb or get more energy out of that, um, out of the same wavelength of light. And what you're talking about is a much, uh, this explains the increase in growth that I've seen. Um, and this is a good metric for me because it's a causative me me metric, meaning I can say, I can determine the increase in light absorption by the water and the transfer, the increased transference to the chlorophyll. This is uh, what you call science, where you can explain what's happening and why it's happening. You can say, well, this, make, this is, we changed this by this mechanism and got this result, and it all pencils out. And um, that's one thing that I really like, especially when people talk about 5G technology and being worried about EMF, which they're is a lot of credible data for that and understanding that water has ability structured water has ability to instead of have forming um, lenses that increase the in damage of the ionizing radiation actually completely neutralize it absorb it and turn it into a form where it's donated to our cellular function and that is um that's what i was that's what I've been able to, through a series of different tests, been able to actually show is likely what's happening with it. Uh, I did see some incredible results that I'm going, these, again, I didn't perform the test. I'm going, how is it even possible these people are getting some of these results? I need it. I, I didn't even believe it. I'm like, they're, they're pulling my leg or something. And I'm like, if it was possible, then what, what is the mechanism it's operating by? And, uh, based upon the testing and the results of the tests that I've done, which I, I want to teach other people so they can verify or confirm or um, if I'm missing something or made a mistake somewhere, I want to know. I want to learn more, but uh, it can be pointed out. Uh, based on the tests that I have seen, it, it, the, the results of massive increase in plant growth and the huge the elimination of the need for antibiotics in a hog barn. Now, can you imagine not needing antibiotics when you live your entire life in your own filth? filth? That's an accomplishment. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. So, so and what we're gonna, what we're definitely gonna have to do, uh, Joseph, is we are definitely gonna have to do a part two uh, after I get this device going, and we've got water pouring all over the the property, and we watch this thing turn into okay. uh, the gar literally the Garden yeah. of Eden. So we'll we'll have you back in probably ahead. a couple months, and we're gonna we're gonna tear this up, and until then, um, uh, you know, Joseph Johnson, all I can say is is. You've you've certainly melted my brain again, and and I'm sure Jeff's feeling that. And what we're going to do is let our listeners try to keep up remotely with with a lot of the information that you have put out there, because you got to remember you're talking to mere humans, bro. 
So we're going to, we're going to, and I'm going to continue to learn uh, from you and understand this and be able to, as a caveman that I am, be able to speak it, you know, explain it in caveman terms. And we, we will continue to educate people and get this yeah. device into farmers' hands and, and the general public so that they can feel the health benefits and see the, uh, see the benefits for their gardens and, and their crops. Sounds like yeah. a plan. Um, sounds good. Right? If you'd like to do um, a small or a quicker follow-up in, uh, in the near future, I'd love to do a small um, a video where I, I show the different, test, different testing methods that people can do at home and use to actually see the effects that I'm talking about. How there I we go. If that's going to be a VIP show. Millions of words, let me just show you. It'll be way easier that way. You yeah, and that'll be... Yeah, we can make that a VIP show. For the people that have ordered this, these devices that you have, uh, you've got a couple different versions of them. Uh, and then once they get them, and, and then they can test them themselves and follow along, that'll be a VIP show that people can can uh, jump on with us for the, you know, just like I said, the crowd that, that ordered them. So that that's, I think, the way to go. This is the third time you right, I'll, I'll, show. Um, yeah, whatever you guys want to do it. I would like to just show you uh, most interest. I mean, most more most interested in, uh, I can show it to you or have you understand it so you can disseminate the information to other people. But also having a video out there where people, again, I was watching, I've seen all of these different structured water units out there claiming to do this, claiming to do that, and no testing, no data. And if people want to test it, the mechanisms to test are hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I'm like, we don't need that. Here's how, here's how you can tell. There's simple ways to do it. I want to empower people. I want to stop people from getting ripped off by this. Any, any more from, you know, any more about from this, uh, from this, this. I don't. It's one. I don't want people to get ripped off. Two. I want people to recognize how, what we can talk if we understand what's going on with this. This understanding changes everything about our, our relation to cellular biology uh, to life itself this is one of the most critical things in life that we have this uh, is water it's, it's most essential to life and and the, these differences that i've noticed i've been able to actually prove and show um indicate a tremendous amount of potential for us as a race well, you have heard it straight from the horses. Sorry, I mean to cut you off, but we are running dead, dead on end yeah, on yeah, time. Yeah. Joseph, thank you so very much. I am looking forward for part two, man. Everyone, sit out there and digest this. Uh, if you guys have any questions, comments, everything, check us out on the conspiracy uh, on Twitter, Conspiracy Farm One. Slide in those DMs. Let us know what you think, and check out our store, tcf-store.com, for the champ, for myself. Peace and so much love.